Welcome. Welcome back to Joker Men. Today we have a kind of different style of episode. It's very free form. We're not talking about a record. We're we're talking about a phenomenon. We're, we're talking about Dylanology. Uh, and we are more specifically talking about a piece by writer and professional podcast guest, John Semley, <laughs> who is doing what he uh, does professionally. He's doing his job by being yeah. on Jokerman. I'll Welcome, send you John. Guys, I'll send you guys an invoice when this is done. Uh, yeah, <laughs> thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a big uh, a big fan of the pod and of uh, mid to late Bob Dylan. So it's good to be here. Thank you, uh, thank you for the the kind words. What what are your uh, before you know before we get into the 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 deep stuff? Uh, just mid to late Bob. What are, what are what are some of your favorite songs, albums, whatever? Lately, I'm on a big street legal kick, which Hell I yeah. get. I Hell guess yeah. is I guess is not that novel, but uh, I feel it, like it's novel. I mean, that's that's like some of the most mid Bob <laughs> Bob that exists. Yeah, but most uh, people don't know that. Yeah, I think when Stephen Hyden put together his recent like uprocks list of the best Dylan albums and it came in at like in the top 10, I was kind of surprised. But whenever people can't get into that one, I'm just like, oh, it's him trying to do the E Street Band. Right. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> mm. um, so I'm a big fan of that record. I mean, Infidels, uh, I've been listening to a lot. I was thinking today about it actually came up in my mind. Uh, I was listening to Rush, the album Signals by Rush, because I'm Canadian, so I have to like once a week. Of course. And I was thinking that Signals by Rush and Infidels have like my favorite '80s rock production. Album. <laughs> um, but are they are they similar? I I don't know Signals that well. I think it's like well maybe it's different for Rush because they're they are of that era. But I think it's like it's so easy for people to myself included to tune out of especially quote legacy acts as they get in the eighties because they, everything kind of sounds like dire straits. Right. Yes. <laughs> Nop, Nopler was all over the place that decade. Yeah, totally. And so, you know, things can kind of sound kind of flat and computerized, but uh, infidels and signals, I think it like really works and dire straits. I'm not even shooting on dire straits. I like them. No. Yeah. Dire straits yeah. is awesome. Yeah, Mark Mark Knopfler was like the Jack Antonoff of that uh, particular era. <laughs> right. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. He's the only guy who had a computer. <laughs> <laughs> he had, well, he had a computer and a guitar. <laughs> exactly. It's like when your friend you had the one friend on the block who had like an N sixty four and everyone had to go to his house to uh, play Goldeneye. Um, <laughs> but that's that's the stuff I'm into lately, and uh, I've been trying to get back into kind of uh, love and theft, modern times stuff, but um, I like struggle a bit with it, I guess. But yeah. uh, I, I, I'd really like to put, uh, be like a street legal advocate. I want to do for street legal what people did for like, you know, blood on the tracks 30 years ago. Hell yeah. I'm right there. I am also a street legal advocate. I'm, I'm with you on that one. Some of those songs are absolutely incredible. New Pony. Um, yeah. Changing of the Guard. <laughs> I mean, where are you, where are you tonight? I'm just like, I think that's one of his best songs. Yeah. The book ending there. Yeah. Changing of the Guard at the beginning and then Journey Through Dark Heat at the end is just fucking like, like they absolutely pants. I, I really love the um the bongo intro to um journey through dark heat of the other mm -hmm. title of where are you tonight uh <laughs> the um it reminds me a lot of like poison season uh, era destroyer destroyer i see that absolutely because <laughs> yeah, like, well because poison season was destroyer doing the e street band so right. it's all just so, it's it's all the same uh same point of reference anybody trying to do the e street band you're gonna land somewhere in like street legal territory but it's gonna be fine 
It's gonna be good. I will also say, like, I can't defend the album on the whole, but uh, I, I'm a big deadhead. I'm a moderate deadhead. Okay. Uh, down in the Groove has some songs that I really Evan and I you know, were just going back and forth just, over Down in the Groove this today. Morning, I was telling, I was listening to Down in the Groove um, on a whim, just randomly, and I was thinking, like, damn, you got. Death is not the end. You got Shenandoah. You got even ninety miles an hour down a dead end street was like kind of feel it sounding good to me today. Maybe Sylvia. it's just because it's my it's my day off, but like I'm feeling good. I was vibing. No, to, I hear um, you. I like Silvio, and I think that if there's one American songwriter, uh, at least as like a writer of original songs, who I'm comfortable sharing credits with Bob Dylan, it's Robert Hunter. Robert Hunter. Yeah. Well, we we just did. Um, uh, together through life which is his uh robert hunter collabo album and um you would not know it necessarily but but you can feel it I yeah think. i mean yeah i mean i was listening to that the other day or at least i listened to beyond here lies nothing i think which is yeah yeah track yep yep it's uh it's fun stuff um cool well uh i think we can on that note just kind of dive I always say dive. That's such well, a podcasting it's what term. Podcasters do. Yeah, you know, pod, we're, we're like always diving Olympian, into things. Olympian unpacking. divers unpacking. Absolutely. Yeah, what we talk about when we talk about X. How about uh, we can crack into, or we can um, blow into? How about we can honk off uh, <laughs> <laughs> with uh, a quick honk on the horn? The, the harp. The harp. And uh, yeah, let's uh, let's see what we got here from you, John. So you recently uh, published a piece uh, in the New Republic uh, titled "What's Wrong with Bob Dylan's Biographers?" Uh, subhead: uh, The fiercely competitive field of Dylanology pits expert against expert. No one is spared, not even Dylan himself. Uh, I have to say before we get too deep into it, I have to give credit to my editor at the New Republic. Uh, marsh because she's amazing with like titles and stuff like that like uh sorry what what was her name i think it just cut out or like oh laura marsh at the new republic who's my editor there like my my original headline was like a complete unknown or like some dumb right but she's really good at like framing the stakes of an article in a way that people mm. find appealing and it's true when i think about it like uh yeah, not to step on the intro, but like a lot of the pieces, like why is, even though I love Dylan and I feel like a lot of people love Dylan and he's endlessly fascinating and a lot of people want to read about him, why does reading about him always feel like such a chore? Right. Yeah, this is this is a great way, that's a great intro to the topic and uh, I, I think that basically we can talk about your piece, but I think go a broader into just the the wide world of what it means to be a Dylanologist, a word that we have sort of, um, I don't know, villainized on, on Jokerman podcast. Certainly shied away from at the Rightfully, very least. I think it has, I think it has a bad rap. I haven't actually, there a book of Dylanologists, uh, by David A. Kinney that I haven't read yet, but I'm kind of, again, it's that kind of thing where it's like, I feel like I would be excited to read that book because it's attacking or at least dealing with the phenomenon of Dylanology. Right. Whereas a volume of Dylanology is always a slog. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Observing Dylanology as a phenomenon is so much more interesting than Dylanology itself. 
yeah. It, is, is it even interesting? Like, sometimes it's just like, God, these people are, like, so fucking annoying. I'm sorry. We, we, <laughs> I have to say that right off the bat. That is kind of <laughs> the... Um, the the other side of um, Dylanology, it's, but they're they're annoying in different and unique ways. This is true, and I I don't want to poo poo it all right off the bat. Like like any church, there's uh, sectarian divisions among Dylanologists. That I, I mean, I haven't read the book, but I assume they would be interesting to explore. Absolutely. But what what book did you read? And uh, so the, the this review was hung on uh, the double life of Bob Dylan, Volume One: A Restless, Hungry Feeling, 1941 to 1966. By uh, here it is. Well, we can't see that on a fucking podcast. Obviously. Yeah. Well, we're all holding it. We Listeners take for granted. Copy, we all actually. have promo copies here. Uh, yeah. I, it looks like it came with a cooler cover in the UK, but uh, so that's by Clinton Halen, who's written, I think. Eight books on Dylan. Uh, the best known one is his biography, uh, Behind the Shades. Behind the Shades. Kind of, uh, three versions of. Um, and yeah, he's done like song by song analyses and stuff like this. He's written books about the Velvet Underground. I think he wrote a book about David Bowie. The guy's written a lot of stuff. And in like the field of people who write about Dylan, uh, he is, at least in a self styled way, the sort of uh, king of the castle. Yes. Um, yeah, although I find his writing, uh, kind of brutal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think self-styled is the, uh, is the, is the key phrase there because the, um, I mean the beginning of this book, I, I, I haven't read all of it. I've kind of just jumped around uh, and I think Evan has too. Uh, but the beginning of this book, uh, the, the intro like is basically 10 or 15 pages of Halen just kind of going through all of the other recent, uh, biographical projects surrounding Bob, even Bob's own, you know, quote unquote autobiography, which is not even supposed to be taken as an autobiography as you address in your piece and just dressing them all down basically and just shitting on all of them and explaining why what he's about to do uh, is, is so much vastly superior to all of the other scholarship that's, that's been put together on Bob. Part of me respects that because I like this idea that if you're you know, if you're going to start out from the get-go and be like, I am an immensely unlikable person and my writing style and my whole posture is basically insufferable, uh, <laughs> take my hand or not, uh, I, I think that's like a pretty interesting bargain to make as a writer. Uh, but yeah, I think you kind of have to deliver. He seems... It seems like he's kind of, it's a hostage situation. He's like, all right, you don't have to like me, but I'm the one with the goods. I'm the one who has like the most accurate and um, objectively true and uh, uh, information about Bob Dylan. The only problem, which is I think something you get at really uh, concisely and interestingly in your piece, is that um, it's not very fun or interesting uh, to read that type of thing, that raw intelligence about Bob Dylan for various reasons. Um, but it's, it, it's not like, I will say though with Halen, it's not like, you know, I read a lot of history books and like sometimes you can sit down and read like an academic history book and it's like, okay, there's no style here. It's just the facts, ma'am, as they say. That's not the case with Halen. The problem with Halen is that he is under this crazy delusion that he's an amazing writer. And he like is, everything is so overly stylized, you know, the way he uses constructions like tis and twas. Right. He is a British man, right? We should yeah, but he's a British 
British man. He's not a British man from the 17th century. <laughs> but all uh, all British men have a germ of that in them in their subconscious. I think. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely that. But like, as someone put it to me, uh, not all British men. Not so. hashtag not all British men. We remain a defiantly uh, anti-British, uh, pro-Irish podcast. Uh, yes, if that's the conflict, then I agree. <laughs> uh, but yeah, someone put it to me, when you read Halen, you get the impression that he thinks he'd be a better Dylan than Dylan. Th- than that's d- so awesome. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think that we, we actually might have, uh, I, I feel like we've talked about that one particular we talked about him once before, and I feel like I've heard someone say something similar about him specifically. That is just such a funny idea to me. And in a way, it's kind of like charming uh, that he is such a fan that it is almost like he's, you know, he's imagining himself up on that stage. It's it's kind of. Yes, the, the premise is charming, but like you say, it becomes a hostage situation where it's like, okay, I'm willing to buy the ticket, and then you take the ride, and the ride sucks. <laughs> yes. Yeah, this book is, uh, you know, for those of you who uh, haven't read it quite yet, um, uh, which I'm guessing is virtually everyone, because uh, it just came out, and it's very long. Uh, the book is kind of, uh, I mean, uh, like like you mentioned in the title a moment ago, John, it's uh, uh, focused on 41 to 66. It's the story we all know and love. Uh, and as you point out in your piece, I think there's plenty of material that already covers this ground uh, in quite uh, in quite excruciating detail. Um, but uh, but Halen is now attacking this uh, with, armed with this like treasure trove, quote-unquote, of, uh, of documents and primary source material, this Bob Dylan archive that's going to be opening um, uh, in Tulsa, I think, next year or something. Right. Um, and, uh, and basically kind of undertakes the process of telling us this story that we all know uh, at, at this point, but also kind of embellishing and filling in the gaps with just these like kind of random bits and snatches of uh, like uh, just like notebooks and uh, interviews with people who knew Bob at the same time. There's a quote from your piece I want to just drop in here that I think puts it really well. Um, At the risk of dismissing the whole venture out of hand, I can't help but wonder how useful uh, this is, this being the way that Clinton has, you know, kind of uh, approached this biography. First of all, there's a simple matter of credibility. Halen, like anyone who cares even a little bit about Bob Dylan, takes for granted that his subject is a master fabulist, if not a compulsive liar. From his made-up name, to his imagined backstory, to his preternatural ability to mimic folk and blues forms that Halen describes as, quote, uncanny, the, quote, real Dylan has always seemed like a bit of a phantasm. If this penchant for fabulism is so deeply baked into Dylan's DNA, then why should anyone reasonably expect that his private manuscripts or personal letters would adhere any more to the capital T, truth? Uh, So basically, you know, all of the performance that Bob has put on over the last however long is all bullshit to a certain degree. Why aren't why aren't all of these documents uh, that Halen is quoting from equally bullshit, right? Yeah, I think like you know maybe he will find a sort of uh, cocktail napkin where he's like, yeah, I'm that's doing, I'm doing this to bedevil Clinton Halen specifically. Uh... <laughs> that was my favorite uh, bit in your piece was like he's looking for a smoking gun. You said basically that like. Would exactly just be that, like, someday I will be a mysterious man who will do everything <laughs> that in a way that just, yeah, to beguile people. This whole element of Dylan's personality and persona and personas, it takes shape so early in his musical life that it's almost hard to, to locate a point 
from where it originated, right? I mean, I make the comparison mm. in the piece to to Andy Warhol, who, you know, maybe not an obvious comparison, but I think that they both, for artists of that period and of the 20th century in general, have an almost intuitive sense that, like, you can just make yourself up and you can constantly make yourself up and remake yourself. And, like, the real art is kind of your persona. Right. Um, mm. And I and I don't think with in either case that it's a thing where they, like, read that somewhere in a book and a light bulb went off, you know? Uh, I just think they have kind of an intuitive understanding of it because they grew up in that first generation that was just kind of immersed in the culture of images and not the first in the culture of celebrity, but, you know, would watch people on TV, would see Elvis on television, would hear the radio, would have a sense of like, you know, people performing their sort of musical and artistic identities. Right. Uh, so yeah, trying, trying to sort of, yeah, find the smoking gun or find this kind of origin story. Uh, you know, if he, can find it i mean more power to him i guess that would be cool but it also has that effect of ruining what at least i and i think a lot of people like about bob dylan right well yeah i mean it's just the attitude that he, he seems to take is um searching for something which probably a just doesn't exist some kind of like secret code to unlock the meaning of bob dylan and and b it's just like once you take that stance Every bit of the music and the cult and everything that actually is like the of value uh, to be enjoyed, the products of his work as an artist, kind of becomes so much uh, brush to like cut through, looking for some golden key. Like, it, what is? Uh, when do you stop and just like smell the roses when you're when you're approaching his work that way it's like i mean i i used to work a bit more as like a film critic and it'd be like if someone was like oh i really enjoyed that movie and i was like well you know they're actually just still images being projected in right <laughs> to create the illusion of movement you realize of course that they're all just actors reading a script and none of it is real i mean who, who is served by that you know it, it's funny that um the book even uh goes so far as to go 1941 to 1960 1941 like how much does clinton halen focus on bob dylan's first year yeah, not at all. I mean, he ta he talks about his birth and his family life and that and like how he was sort of firmly middle class to upper middle class and, you know, all the things that have, have kind of been written about. Uh, but next, yeah, next, right. next book, it's going to be like Clinton Halen, uh, Bob Dylan, 1941 to 1943. And it's just going to be all about like Bob Dylan's like uh, drawings and, and, and spit spit ups when he was a little boy, baby. Uh, Bob Dylan's devious ultrasound photos. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, the, the other thing too is like, you know, if the subsequent volumes of this, or if and when they come out, I just think that in terms of sort of building out the sort of canon and the story of Dylan's life, they'd be so much more interesting because like this territory is so kind of running the ground, you know? And it's like, I think as fans of this stuff, yeah, you can't read about Newport too many times or you can't read about like, you know, the construction of like a Rolling Stone too many times. But it's like, yeah, it's 1941 to 1966, but like everything written about Dylan, it's 1962 to 1966. Right. Uh, and, it, and it has the effect of just being like, yeah, we get it. Highway 61 revisited, bringing it all back home, blonde on blonde. Those are the masterpiece albums, you know? Uh, and I think that can get a little exhausting. So I'm always down for when people dig deep into other periods of his career. And I think like any major artist, 
I mean, you see this with the bootleg series and the live titles, right? You get these liner notes and you get this sort of context around it where like everything he's done is now being like recontextualized as some lost masterpiece, uh, which, you know, I think that it might be a problem too. But yeah, if, if Halen were to dig into the archives and get into the 70s and 80s and stuff that's kind of less sketched out, uh, in that case, I'd be more willing to ride along with him and suffer his tediousness. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's tough sledding for these years. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the whole reason we made this podcast, I think, was <laughs> that um, the impetus was at first that like it seemed like everybody knows, anybody who knows anything about Bob Dylan kind of just knows all you need to know about those early years. Yes, you can write a lot more you can dig deeper and maybe there's some things in there that are, are, are illuminating but i mean there's so much more to it that seems to be um i think now actually is it's starting to be mined and like looked at um, with more um curiosity just by like the people in like the dylan world and even just like music fans in general like the mid, like the seventies and the eighties and nineties, up to right now, but um, we we just decided to skip that whole part. Uh, for the- I think there's also the effect too, especially when you talk about again, like that trifecta of albums that are so written about. Uh, like literally right beside me, I have the thirty three and a third about Highway sixty one, and then I have Grail Marx's book just about like a Rolling Stone. Right. You know, there's there's so much stuff there that like it always lends itself to this very interpretive, almost like gnostic thing where it's like, yeah. I don't need to read a line by line like decoding of Desolation Row. You know, where like there's stuff with that where. I, and I don't want to say that it's so good or it's so genius that it's like impenetrable or you can never understand it, but there's obviously a deliberate, uh, deliberately cryptic nature to the lyrics where at a certain point you can just kind of like throw up your hands and be like, okay. Whereas like, I feel like other albums, you can actually dig into it and you can actually maybe see how the songs are reflecting where he's at in his life, where the world is at. You know what I mean? I think that the, the, the Dylanological efforts would you know, better serve albums uh, from the seventies and eighties and even into now. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would love to get the, uh, the, the line by line breakdown of like I and I, because (laughs) uh, as, as uh, maybe not great of a song as that might be, like I still have, I have no fucking idea where his head was at when he wrote that. And I also don't really know where his head was at when, when he wrote Desolation or No, but that's because, like, you know, you're not supposed to know where his head was at on something like Desolation or No. There's an element of, like, uh, mystery there that is there deliberately. Like, that's an artistic choice on his part. And the these constant efforts to demystify and peek behind the curtain, particularly when Bob, obviously, is so intent on having that curtain up in the first place, um, you know, efforts that Halen is going through here, or you know, even someone as as uh, as legendary as uh, um, uh, Weberman, for instance. It's just it, it feels so infamous, totally wrong. You mean. Infamous, yes, legendary for all the wrong reasons. It feels so wrong headed to me. Like like you're deliberately kind of um, um, you know taking this beautiful object that this artist made and like stamping on it and and trying to break it and, and like you know just kind of fuck with it. Trying to break, crack it open, and like see how it works. It's a, a fool's errand. 
and I, and I think it leads to almost this, which is something I tried to touch on in this review, which is like the way in which kind of professional biographers of subjects, their interest in the subject calcifies almost into a kind of like resentment and hatred, which is mm. so obvious in the way that Halen writes about Dylan that like he's almost despises him in a way. I mean, right. he, Halen can write very beautifully and admiringly about like visions of Joanna, or I know that he's like one of the rare people to defend Ronaldo and Clara if it needs defending uh but it's it's like you know the way he talks about Dylan as a person it's like oh Bob the boozer was popping pills that's so tacky yeah and it's like and you see I mentioned this thing that I came across uh a couple years ago on the internet was like a conspiracy that the Beatles never existed uh and I was like okay yeah short of literal like Mark David Chapman style assassination of a subject this is like the where fandom ends up is like you want to own a thing so completely that you have to like destroy it. But John, it. John, I to, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Uh, who are the Beatles? I've never heard of them. <laughs> oh my god! Oh, you're living in the yesterday universe. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so I would like that. to see that with Bob. With yeah. the, but it all the only difference it would make is like all these like old people like didn't drive themselves insane by like becoming obsessed with Bob Dylan. They it would have actually been a net positive uh, in a lot of ways. Yeah, exactly. And then with no context, you'd go up on stage and do like Desolation Row or It's Alright, Mom, Only Bleeding, and people would just fucking pelt you with garbage. <laughs> yeah, and that's what the fuck a, I mean, is this shit? This is a fascinating idea. It's just like if that were to happen, you know, it, it's different than like the concept of that awful seeming movie with uh, where a guy, you know, invents the Beatles because they never existed somehow. If that happened with Bob Dylan, like nobody else could pull it off. That's the thing. Like <laughs> the Beatles, they wrote songs that are like so catchy and perfect in so many ways that it's like viable uh, on some degree uh, level. But it also speaks to the Beatles own sort of self-regarding mania in that movie where it's like, uh, you know, they're one of the bands who, if you ever want to license a song of theirs for a movie, like forget about it. You know, they're so kind of closely guarded with that stuff. I remember it was a huge deal when Mad Men got like Tomorrow Never Knows on that one episode. Exactly. But then it's like, if they make a movie about themselves, it has to be about, you know, not a biopic of them, but about them not existing. And the idea that their music is so universal and timeless that it will appeal to people regardless of the historical context, you know, like that movie, sorry to get hung up on this fucking. Was, was that like an official, I mean, it must've been like an officially sanctioned thing. Yeah. Cause they like, had all the songs. Yeah, of course they had all the songs. And like, I think McCartney did some interviews around it, but it's yeah. like, it, it's almost like a, a false humility. It's like, Oh, we're not going to do our own biopic. We're going to do a movie about how incredible, Incredible it would be if you had never heard our music and then you could hear it and it's like this is set in the modern world where like uh, David Bowie exists in the fiction of the movie like would anyone give a fuck about I want to hold your hand that's like, <laughs> almost a huge album like it's just totally ahistorical you know <laughs> no it, it it makes zero sense but I I don't know when getting back to this point about like Dylan and trying to decipher him I I don't I feel like we are at a kind of a weird point. I don't know if you feel this way, Ian, but like we've been so deep in this. We've been in this for for a long time. It's a year now that we've just been inundated with Dylan stuff. And uh, I think my perspective has definitely changed. And in some ways, I don't know if you feel this way too, but um, I find it less impressive and also more impressive at the same time, like what he does now. Um like I feel like what he's able to do now, the the records that he's done, 
since and it, the since 2000 are just like so effortlessly chock full of the stuff that everybody um, loses their mind about, like the Halens of the world, the Dylanologists just lose their shit about, you know, everything on the big three in like the 60s. He's doing stuff that's just as good, just as deep, just as profound. But he's just been able to do it for so long that it's like easy to get used to that. And just when it's coming out of like a firebrand young man with like dark glasses on and the prime of his youth, that's like a very different feeling. But it's not like he's that's gone away. It's just he was hot then, you know, right? Like. Yeah, no, I I feel the same way, Evan, and I I think that um you know uh, his latter day material is maybe more interesting to try to decode yeah. than the uh, early day stuff. Not only because Aren't it has been attempted so less often, but because there's just such a variety decode, of fascinating kinds. Do you, of, not de- do you still not decode, feel like? But you I know, don't dig feel into. like the yeah. I, at this point, I don't feel like decoding is the way that I enjoy Dylan's music at, anymore. Like I. It seems to me, after having gone as far as we've gone at this point, that there's a few themes that he always comes back to or like really essential ideas that he likes to explore. And then it's always interesting where he goes with those and and which ones he juxtaposes together. Um, I was re-listening to his Nobel speech, and I, I think it's a really... If if you want to fucking decode this man, like he, that's the closest anybody's ever come to hear. And he just gave it right to everybody about like these are three books that kind of like were extremely important to me and how I thought about writing. And uh, the way he describes those is like it doesn't even leave that much to the imagination. It's pretty clear to see like okay, I get how a young guy could read Moby Dick. Uh, the the Odyssey and All Quiet on the West, Western Front and then take acid and, and amphetamines and um, also just be really naturally talented and, and do what he does. Yeah, I mean, I, I think especially with the way his voice is aged and like the his and again, it's not a recent obsession, but it's more foregrounded with like the American songbook and with other people's music, you know? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of that, it kind of clicks some of it into focus. Um but I, I mean, I don't know. Like, I don't necessarily like sit down and put on like Fallen Angels or Tempest necessarily all the time. But I'm one of those. You should. That- <laughs> Evan, Evan does. Well, I'm the biggest Tempest head in the world, maybe, and and Fallen Angels too. It's really good. Well, I, I mean, I respect that, but it's like you know, even when when Murder Most Foul came out, you know, it was kind of easy to make fun of, not make fun of, but it's like you know in that tender loving way but it's like yeah there's nothing to decode there you know like this is just like a a sort of chronicle of the american past and his obsessions in the way where Mm -hmm. he might as well just be rattling off a list yeah yeah right i mean same with tempest The, the the song tempest only recently has become something i've i've been listening to a lot and everybody made jokes about it when it came out about like there's a like almost 20 minute song about the Titanic. Like that's like just on its face. Ridiculous. But the more you listen to it um, and the, the less uh, you try to read into it, the more you just think about just the bare fact that it's recounting. Um, it is profound and it's uh, and it's not profound in the way that like it's all over now. Baby blue is. But uh it's 
it, it's it, it's just going a more direct route. It's um, straight down the middle. You guys asked earlier, like the type of stuff I like too. I mean, this and this isn't really mid to mid to late Dylan, but you know, he came out of reclusion and did like John Wesley Harding, and it was almost oh, yeah. like a challenge to himself or to critics to be like, okay, I'm gonna write almost uh, lyrics that are biblically simple and straightforward you right know? uh and that leads to i think like the the ballad of frankie lee and judas priest i think is one of his like beautiful oh, songs yeah. where he's putting it on the line like what the song is about you know uh and i don't think that it sort of takes away from anything in his music it's funny that you mentioned when you mentioned that one though in particular i as simple as the language is in that song it's, I think, one of the most mysterious songs of his whole career. The moral is right there at the end, I Evan. know, but like... <laughs> the I, moral of this story, some, the moral of this song. Can't accept that. Like, that is one... Of all the records, I actually find John Wesley Harding to be kind of like one of the most enigmatic. Um, yeah, yeah. Or at least... Yeah, I mean, and it, in a way where like it feels like it's open to interpretation and can be interpreted. Yeah, interpreted. yeah. But I mean, also the moral of the story in that song is that nothing is revealed and that there is right. no moral. <laughs> right, exactly. Be this kind of hollow center, which is like you know, as morals go, I guess it kind of just personally resounds with me. So maybe that's why I like it. The moral is that uh, you you should never be where you you don't belong, and then nothing is revealed. Don't have too much sex, otherwise you will exhaust yourself and die. That's basically what happens. Yeah, take it easy, brother. That's the moral <laughs> of the story, moral of the song. Bob the Boozer knew all about that. Too. Just, yeah, that's that's like such a hacky thing that that I, I feel like is kind of common in like British media to just like kind of shit all over the person that you supposedly like. Oh, and Halen just has this kind of like catty tone too that I find so fucking annoying. He's an old queen, really. <laughs> he definitely has that quality. Like I think Jesse Jarno, the author and radio host, who's a really nice guy, he pointed out this thing where Halen was writing about the Dylan and the Dead album and just made some offhand comment like Jerry Garcia had to put down his ham sandwich to go jam with oh. Dylan. And it's like, wow, what an insight. You fucking <laughs> Jerry Garcia's fat? Incredible. Like you gain absolutely nothing from that except sounding like some bitchy little tabloid good one dude yeah, yeah and it's not even in, it's not even like insulting in a mean way this is literally just like if donald trump wrote a song uh <laughs> wrote a book about bob dylan like yeah jerry garcia was very nasty to me yeah he was <laughs> he should he should stop eating so much of his famous ice cream but yeah it's like if, if literally if you were to make a joke about garcia coming out of a diabetic coma it would at least be like whoa holy shit that's mean but being like he had to put down a ham sandwich to go jam with dylan it's like not only do you think you're a good writer and you're not you think you're funny and you're not which is almost a worst effect that's yeah. that's a british curse uh a lot of a lot of them are like this although put a, I have put to a say, wall up around the whole island and just keep i want to like i want to be very uh the Romans tried that. Yeah. I want to make a clear uh, exemption for Rowan Atkinson because I just watched Mr. Bean's Holiday <laughs> last night and it was a delight. Oh, yeah. I actually like uh, Rowan Atkinson in the Johnny English movies. I you know what's cool about him as Mr. Bean um, is, is that he's a British comedian who doesn't uh, say anything. <laughs> Yeah, and that's what, you know, I've always thought about this with Mr. B, too, and it's the same with the Monty Python guys. This is kind of a tangent, but it ties into the British uh, sensibility, I think, in a meaningful that's, way. That's important. It's like, you have to have a degree from, like, Oxford or Cambridge so that you can play, like, Mr. Stupid the Moron on TV. Yeah. Like, if you want to do, like, dick and fart, like, humor, 
everyone has to know that you have like an upper level degree in like right. buffoonery. So you're just like allowed to do it. Whereas one of the great things about North America is that you can just be a stupid asshole uh, and get rich that way. Exactly. Stupid asshole. And just start recording your terrible conversations about Bob Dylan albums and then still be doing it yeah, a year later. What, that's what we're banking on. We're, we're, <laughs> we're really putting it all on the line for that principle of American we, life. We should have gotten uh, PhDs in podcasting, Evan. I guess it's not. It's still not too late. Is it not? A, a worse investment in journalism school. <laughs> no, Nobel Prize for podcasting. I think we're like pretty well on our way. If uh, you know, if if the subject got a Nobel, then like that probably puts us up a few more notches. Yeah, it'll probably be uh, uh, Michael Barbaro from uh, the New York Times, and then well, it'll be us. We're number the two. The British, uh, the British Post, the British uh, uh, media, they acknowledged us by name. That's so. true. Yes. Oh, really? In what context? Were they calling the, you the two stupid assholes? Yeah, the, 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 the dumb American they, um, shitheads. They just said uh, it was the Guardian. They just said that there is a podcast uh, called Jokerman, basically. We, with no opinion on it whatsoever. No, yeah, no opinion either way. Just <laughs> yeah, the they fact said that, that we're they said we're new. Yeah. yeah, yeah, but I mean, I, let me put it to you guys because you guys, I mean, you talk. It's kind of your stock and trade, and I actually like your podcast a lot because it is entertaining, uh, which is wow. This is news to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, okay, so why do you guys think that like Dylan lends himself to so much bad writing, or like, why? How can someone so interesting be so? I don't know, hard to write about and hard to read about sometimes. Like he's like, it's like the opposite of Orson Welles where it's like, well, oh, he's so it's like the most entertaining book. Right. Orson Welles right. is a great example of somebody who like every story, every, everything he ever said is always just like effortlessly um, funny and clever and at least interesting. Bob Dylan is like somebody who like famously, you know, people talk about meeting him like other celebrities and just be like, he didn't say like anything to me. Right. <laughs> and he's just right. like kind of, you know, sitting in the corner. There's that great story I heard recently. Uh, it was like a dog is like brought up into a hotel room. It was like a famous actor, like Kirk Douglas, or like Michael Douglas brought up his dog to a hotel room with Bob Dylan and George Harrison were. Yeah. And the dog starts eating, um, all, or it's not his dog. Like somebody else's dog starts eating all of Michael Douglas's caviar. And then Bob Dylan just goes far out dog likes caviar. Yeah. And like, that's the, that's the anecdote. The fact that he like said anything. Yeah. The, that he, the, the Peter Grant story. It's another classic example. Just like, Hey, I'm Peter Grant. I manage Led Zeppelin. And Dylan's like, I don't come to you with my problem. Oh my God. <laughs> I mean, like, to get back to your, to your question, I, I, of why he he inspires so much bad writing and bad and bad thoughts. <laughs> I I don't know. I mean, I think that it's Ian. What do you what do you think? I mean, I I think that in general, uh, uh, just uh, most writing is bad. Uh, and well, so yeah. anyone who anyone who inspires a lot of writing is going to inspire by default mostly bad writing. Um, but I mean, beyond that, I think there is this element of like. You know, uh, there's this puzzle box element to Bob and his music and his life that kind of inspires a certain type of person. And Halen is maybe, you know, the the, uh, the perfect example of this type of person. 
um, who is maybe a little too big for their britches, feels like they can bite off more than they can chew, and think like, you know, I'm the one, I'm the guy who's going to get this. Mm. You mentioned this in your piece, John, and, and I think like A.J. Weberman is the perfect example of this going through trash, you know, in, in 71. Like, I'm, I'm the brilliant person who's finally going to put all the pieces together and solve this. There you go. <laughs> Um, and, Sorry, I just uh, held up my copy of Weberman's Dillinda English Dictionary. Yes, and I want to. Uh, Ugh, we'll come back to that in a second because you, you said object. you've actually talked to Weberman a couple of times, so I would love to hear about that. Um, but just to to finish, I, you know, I think that that type of person, uh, you know, is is approaching things in the wrong direction entirely. I, th- I think, uh, like you were mentioning a moment ago, Evan, when I said decode, that was the wrong word decoding is not what I want to do here. It's, I, I want to keep that distance or that, that kind of sheen over the, like, you know, the, the, the gritty beating heart of what, whatever's going on on the other side of things. I want to, I want to keep that hidden from me and just kind of talk about the way that it makes me feel and the way that it, it kind of, um, uh, affects the world around it. But I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to see like what led to it necessarily. And, and that's just an impulse. I think that doesn't not to, toot our horn or anything and say that we're doing something good and everyone else is doing something bad but that impulse i think is just not there so much in in the type of writing that you get um in um really in music in general there's there's a lot of hero worship and celebrity and stuff um and uh and and you know uh, people constantly feel like they need to um you know kind of get to the bottom of things especially at with someone like bob who is deliberately trying to prevent people from getting to the bottom I, of things I think- in the first place I think that something about Dylan and the way that people view him uh, that happens is people look at Bob Dylan and are trying to figure out what he is thinking. And he, I think it's become, I, I've, it's, I think it's pretty clear at this point that he thinks about things in terms, in a big way, in terms of the past. And he's thinking about things from a point of view that is much more connected to America's past and I I think he's kind of uniquely connected in some ways to certain viewpoints that um, most people just don't really have any sense of anymore like the fact that he was able at such a young age to so quickly absorb all of these different American folk music styles and like every inch and nook and cranny of these like very specific folk vernacular that means that like he was a young man who basically had like all of these reference points from 30 40 years before he was even born which would have been like the early 1900s is like the stuff whirling around in his mind he's managed to keep all of that intact and then like basically grew up in he said he feels more of a product of the 50s actually than the 60s which seems clear in the way that he acted in the 60s like never became a flower power type guy. Um, I think that people, uh, they, they know that something's happening and they don't know what that the thing <laughs> is that he's actually just, um, he's kind of just in touch with genuinely somehow in touch with these older forms of American culture of, of, of American life and not just American, just like he has like an old brain. He's got like old, like old, dusty, weird stuff that to us seems unrecognizable and re- and almost mystical. And it can uh, it can just throw people for a loop when they try to figure out what he's talking about. But sometimes what he's saying is actually more 
obvious than any. It, it's like the problem of something being so clear and so big in front of your face that you don't even recognize it. Like the 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 themes that he gets into lately, they tend to be big, big themes that are just like death, uh, love, the loss of love, and and people. If you look back, like that's kind of always what was there. I don't know. That was kind of a rambling answer, but no, I th- I think that makes sense too. And it's like the you know the one thing that Halen kind of traces, and a lot of people who write about Dylan in the sixties, you know, becoming famous, and again that almost like instantaneous realization that his life and his songs would no longer belong to him, is that the way that he withdraws and the way that he is kind of either if he's just being like you know, so earnest that people take it as cryptic or if he's being like willfully obfuscating. I think that from the job of a biographer and a writer, it leaves all that room for interpretation. It's not like someone like Orson Welles, where you can literally just transcribe his speeches and everything he did. And it's going to be entertaining. There's so much space that you have to fill in, uh, in an interpretive way. And that, those interpretations and not just like of songs and stuff like that but like of what he's doing what he's thinking how he fits into the era how he's speaking to the era if it is at all it's going to yield varying results you know what i mean it's like having to grade 200 term papers about the sopranos they're not you know you're going to get a bunch of fucking lemons in there (laughs) the sopranos is something we've mentioned quite a few times on the podcast because it it like bob dylan in some ways is like enjoyed by so many people and interpreted in so many different there are the people who think it's so important to know what happens in the last episode why did it cut to black and then there's the people who you know go like actually it's not important uh what happens it's supposed to be just a ambiguous artistic statement and then of course later down the line you get like david chase himself going like yeah, Tony dies probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like, what the, exactly. Well, well, that, that that's a great that's a great example of this whole like, and not to use like the Susan Sontag phrase, but like the against interpretation thing, where it's yeah, if you pay like not even if you pay attention to the clues in the Sopranos but if you like follow how it coheres as a scene and even think of like what the show is about there's no other reasonable conclusion other right. than right it's right. it's exactly it's an artful way of showing something obvious which is kind of what I was trying to say I guess about Dylan I think he's always doing that and and when he was younger uh those three like in the big three albums especially something like you know Baby Blue comes to mind it's like uh to varying degrees, he's doing more or less artful ways of um, of of talking about obvious or like familiar or you know real just basic themes. Like, what is it's all over now, baby blue? About I think it's about some kind of loss. It's about some kind of feeling of like a, a relationship or a way of life that you knew breaking up. A feeling of like losing your the bottom falling out from under you and like a rolling stone kind of a version of that he plays at various times with going back and forth between like how much is he gonna like sometimes he puts on like a little too much poetic sauce for my taste even like gates of eden i think is a, a song that's great but like there's it could do with a maybe a little bit more meat than than sauce that's on there um as great as it is, uh, I mean, sometimes a song like that is like, okay, good luck trying to interpret this because it's kind of, it's it's just like a big soup, and there's little 
there's decipherable parts, but like, I'm sorry, I'm talking about food so much, but. (laughs) (laughs) But but yeah, I agree. I mean, it's like, it's that thing where he's get something and he's getting at subjects and ideas in a way that is non-literal, but that doesn't mean that it's just like, it's not based on nothing interpretation yeah exactly and it's not it's not like it's supposed to just be intentionally baffling or something like uh you know another person who people to act like this a lot about is david lynch he's like his movies are about things they are about stuff it's not just gobbledygook it's just told in a weird way yeah or or sometimes those things are like sensations or feelings exactly yeah totally uh yeah i mean i At the same time that, like, you know, I kind of cut my teeth on criticism, so to speak, as a person who was, like, on the IMDb and Rotten Tomatoes message boards, like, deciphering clues in Mulholland Drive. But then there's a certain point where you realize, like, that is not the exercise. You know what I mean? Like, that, it's like the classic dissecting a frog thing about, like, if you explain how a joke works, it becomes unfunny in the process, you know? Right, right. And and, and not everything has to have this, like, hyper-rationalized, schematized meaning. Like, to, to move the conversation into Weberman a bit, like, A.J. Weberman, that was his whole project with his Dylan to English Dictionary is to basically create a decoding system using an old punch card computer where it's like, well, every time he says this word, he really means this. Um, <laughs> Uh, which, which is like th- that is like you know you hear about like enlightenment rationality and that is like the of the form of rationality that is like more superstitious than superstition and mysticism you know yeah right that is how could anybody stand a chance against a guy like that like let alone somebody like bob dylan i mean that just you and i wouldn't want to be in the room with that guy like that's just a crazy person <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think he's like I think he's a worthy foe for sure. Like, a worthy, I, I, is I, he? I, I mean, I think in a way, I think he like especially in those phone calls and like maybe not anymore. Like Weberman has kind of become a total crank, and I spoke to him for an article a few years ago, and it was kind of like that thing where it's like, uh, am I like exploiting this like old man? But uh, <laughs> I don't think that it's possible to exploit AJ Weberman. Yeah, I think he he he. he he deserves everything that comes to him. Yeah, but I I think that like I think that like you know does Bob Dylan care what Clinton Halen says about him? I sincerely doubt it. Even though Halen, of course, believes that they're in secret communication with one another. Right. Uh, oh, it's okay. Like that, Maybe uh, it is possible to exploit him if that's like the level he's on now. Jesus it's Christ. It's that uh, it's that Mad Men meme where there's the kid and Don Draper in the elevator, and the one says, uh, "I feel so bad for you," and Don Draper says back to him, "I don't think about you at all." Very fittingly, in that character goes insane. <laughs> But I think that Weberman is someone because his project is like so demented that it's like, you know, I'm not going to say some sort of like doppelganger of Dylan. I mean, Weberman literally styled himself to try to like resemble Dylan, even though he was like a big, fat, bald guy. He's he's the Joker, Bob Dylan. That's me. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that like uh, he was he is up to the task of uh like he represents everything that Dylan hated so much in such a profound way that yeah. There's a, there's almost something like more legitimate and like more um appropriate 
in the Weberman kind of approach versus the Halen kind of it's approach. Tr- like if you're true. going to try yeah. to to like look at the sheep's <laughs> intestines and divine whatever, literally going on do here, it. Look through like, the yeah, garbage. Exactly. Yeah. Be a, be completely off the fucking just deep be, end. Become a fucking raccoon, just scu- like scuttling it through the alleyway. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I I agree with that. Not necessarily from like a historiographic or biographical perspective, where it's like, okay, if I actually wanted to learn about Bob Dylan, I wouldn't turn to AJ. Weberman. But I, <laughs> like I say, I think that I think that Weberman is uh, more worthy of Dylan than a lot of the 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 people who try to make a run at figuring him out. Yeah, yeah, because right. Weberman has a literal Bob Dylan shaped hole in the middle of his brain, and um, so <laughs> he is the perfect foe. You know, he he has the type of brain damage where you you have a um, perfect uh, silhouette of Bob Dylan's head. Uh, but in profile as just that's missing in your brain. Yeah. And I mean, when I, when I wrote this review for the new Republic, I sort of framed it around Weberman a bit about, cause he invented the term Dylanology, right? Right. It's right. Like, you know, the, the progenitor of the discipline such as it is. And obviously it's like most extreme practitioner and people are like, well, it's not really fair to say that like everyone who does Dylanology is a descendant of Weberman, which like, I agree. That's a fair criticism. It's not like, and in fact, everyone tries to sort of get out from under his shadow because his shadow is so uh, kind of fucked up and unbecoming. <laughs> yeah. But I, I, I do think that, there's a way in what Weberman did, which is like, yeah, rooting through the trash, openly harassing Dylan, uh, creating c- cockamamie theories that he has HIV, that his tours were uh, funneling money to the state of Israel uh, to help suppress Palestine. Like there, there's <laughs> that that one that one's true actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, neighborhood bully, what do you think? Exactly. Um, but yeah, I think that there's like a way. There's a way that. Uh, Weberman practices Dylanology that I do think the kernel of it is even in the more sort of uh, respectable ways in which it's practiced, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that uh, really, I mean, what it comes down to, to me, like my takeaway with this 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 book of Halen's uh, specifically and the whole kind of effort and field in general is just this this tendency or this, this um, um, desire to academicize something that was never meant to be academicized in the first place is just completely misplaced. And you're going to end up just going off in the wrong direction if that's the way you're going. Film criticism is not that different either. It's like the people who are all up into like theory or art criticism for that matter. It's just like, really, is the theory end of the spectrum of art criticism, of film criticism, music, is, is that like where it's at? Is it? I think they're I think they're different disciplines, right? Or like, I mean, I, they do different things. But it's like, you know, I, and even with the academic criticism, like I like reading Christopher Ricks writing about like Dylan's lyrics and stuff like that because it's like, okay, I might not agree, and yeah, maybe you're sort of putting it under the microscope too much. But like, here's a guy who knows a lot about the history of English literature who's treating Dylan like a work of literature and sort of going at it. Like at least the the perspective is obvious and honest about what it's doing even Mm -hmm. if i don't think it necessarily merits that um but yeah it's almost like it's with with halen you get this mix of like okay he is doing a diligent job going through the archives i'm like this is the problem if you care about dylan like behind the shades is a good biography even if you can't stand the writing it's extremely thorough it's extremely comprehensive if you want to learn about it uh you kind of have to like slog through it and read it but then that exhaustiveness and that diligence is 
complimented or I guess rather undermined by like uh, the way it, like a, a psychoanalyzing him all the time or something. Right, or, right. Or, or mm-hmm. casting these uh, always aspersions on his character, you know? So it's like that thing where it's like, even if Halen has has completed, you know, 80% of the puzzle, he fills in the rest with just this like very kind of nasty conjecture. Right. Uh, which, yeah, that's that's the thing that kind of like gets under. It's like, and you know, I get this too. Like I wrote a book called Hater, which is all about like the virtue of being like harshly critical about things. And it's like, you know, people are like, oh, well, can't you just like stuff? And Right, let people, quote, let people enjoy things. Yeah, which like, I, think, I, I think generally that's a very naive attitude. I it's agree. Like, it's like, why the fuck are you like writing eight books about Bob Dylan? And when I read it, it's like, you can't stand the guy. Oh, uh, well, I, if I could get into a, a, just a pet, uh, a hobby horse of mine that I was reminded of today is this is awful um, Instagram page. Oh, boy, here we go. I'm sorry here to we get go. this, but... There's this Instagram page called um, Lou Reed, the Lou Reed Project, and um, it's something that a lot of people like follow just because of you know it's like you see it and you go oh pictures of Lou Reed, and those are all you know who doesn't love pictures of Lou Reed? <laughs> we all love this, but uh, the thing that um, I have an issue with um, is that the person who runs this account doesn't post any pictures of Lou Reed after like 1979. And when people, he was doing like Q and a and like, people were like, you know, what do you think of like New York? And he would just say stuff like, I don't really like the stuff from the eighties or nineties and kind of just like implied also like, or after that, or like, you know, it's like half of this guy's career. More than just like more than half. And this is the, the entire spirit with which we, I think came to make this podcast about was sort of like a um, rallying against this type of like fetish fetishizing of, of certain great artists, early work as being like, you know, honestly, it's or acting like like that early work is all that they ever did. There's so much more shit that like there's way, there's way more down in the grooves in Bob's discography than there are highway 61s. And 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 way more love and thefts at this point. I mean, and to my point or to your point rather about uh, you know why are you why are you even like writing about this guy if you don't like him? It's like Ian and I did this podcast because we uh, we knew that the great early stuff is great. We know that what he did after that was not consistently great, but always interesting some of it's bad like kind of uh but that's fun to talk about and then crucially we know that after that point it's become great if not as good as ever again and like that's what it means i think to really love an artist and to understand them is um to to be interested in all of the periods that that they are still working still around not everybody's doing stuff as good as late period Bob, but like late period Bob is, and Lou Reed did, you know, it's some of his best work is uh, the later stuff. And so I just uh, get irked when I see people in the the Lou Reed fan community and in the Bob Dylan fan community sort of become Instagram uh, fan community. I mean, it's got like, you know, it's not a small following, but I just don't like to see that, um, that kind of like incuriousness, this sort of like, 
maybe you should just second guess that even making this your thing that you make that you're going to make something about this man if you just like don't really see the value in like 50% of it. No, it, at, at Lou Reed, I'm a huge Lou Reed fan too, and I, I agree with that general sentiment. People are like, oh, I love his later stuff, like Street Hassle. It's like, what? That's like <laughs> the first like ten years of his career, yeah, yeah. and it's like you don't like Magic and Lost. Like you're gonna tell me that like you know, you don't have to listen to anything after like 1978. Um, but yeah, and I mean, it's it's interesting to consider too. Uh, when we talk about major artists like this, yeah, I don't think you're compelled to like everything, right? And I think that one of the things about fandom and especially fandom of, quote, serious artists that kind of drives Miller crazy in a different way is how everything has to be recuperated, right? How it's like, oh, everything that we didn't take seriously at first or that we wrote off uh, is secretly a masterpiece. And I don't agree with that. It rarely, it's so performative when people are kind of bending. Like if someone was going to be like, oh, I think that like Mistrial is the, or Mistrial is the best Lou Reed album, you know? No. Uh, or like fucking Legendary <laughs> Hearts or something. I'd be like, uh, okay. Th- that that you're getting into Harrier Water because uh, <laughs> Harrier uh, territory. I I love um, legendary hearts. But well, fair enough. I'm a blue mask guy, which I guess was just I, like one no. Time. Blue mask is is terrific. I mean, but yeah, I I totally I see what you mean. I mean, I'm not gonna t- uh, for example that point you just made, uh, mistrial. You know, the last track really good. Um, and which one is that? It's a it's called um, tell it to your heart. Underrated song, but like a lot of it is just like you know whatever. Um, and a lot of Bob's stuff, like, you know, Infidels was like a record that on on this podcast, we, we I think early on, we're like, oh, you know, that's one of like the big, the big secret masterpieces. It's not. It's yeah. not a masterpiece <laughs> album. Like, it's a good album sometimes, but it's totally flawed. There's like not, it doesn't hold a candle to even some of the other stuff from around that period, like... And you you have to be honest about like your own opinions and your own feelings about this stuff, as you, as a critic, I guess, as you go through it, and not just go into the like reclaim reclamation mode. Well, I, I was glad to hear you guys when you did talk about Ronaldo and Clark because I I rewatched it recently. I think like everyone who's probably touched this show, I have the same like DVDR burned copy. Right. Yeah. Oh, it you, all it all came from the same VHS from Germany in 1993 or whatever. You know, uh, big time Bob guy on Twitter, Harry Hugh. He actually was the one who uploaded the way the better version. Yeah, which I sadly didn't find until I had already watched the four hours of the Well, movie. Harry was defending, actually, uh, Ronaldo and Clara to me the other day. because I, was like, I saw that. I, about this. And yeah. he's like, well, Ronaldo and Clara is a movie about weird people by a weird person where, like, the Rolling Thunder review movie is, like, a movie about weird people by a normal person. And I'm like, you know, I can get that. Like, I think that by any conventional metric and certainly to my personal taste, the Rolling Thunder review movie is – more conventionally entertaining let's yeah. say that. it's just a movie made by a filmmaker instead of a movie made by a singer although i i will say harry's point uh was to, one of the best points he made was that um if if true you know big if true that like bob was really hurt by the negative reaction to ronaldo and clara and he was like going to make more movies i'm very sad that if that's the case because i would it's because of that that we don't have you know bob dylan's 
um, Infinity War. Like we didn't <laughs> the Bob Dylan just, cinematic universe. Yeah. But I mean, I, I, I mean, whatever. I think that sucks too. And you know, people have said that because of the reaction of Ronaldo and Clara, it cost him control over like subsequent of his albums. And that's you know sad. And a lot of the responses to that movie were very kind of venomous and mean spirited. But at the same time, like just because I like his music doesn't mean that I'm the fucking Red Cross for Bob Dylan. Yeah. Like if true. I think that Ronaldo and Clara sucks, it's like it's not my job to go out in the streets fucking banging a drum for it even if I find it a slog like I think that it's interesting as an auteur object to like make sense of Bob Dylan but is it a good movie uh no right you know, it's right. it's funny though John that like in, in you saying that your reaction is not to like turn that venom out on like Bob himself as a man which is like seems to be Clint like the Clinton Halen school of criticism yeah. it's like when you don't like something Bob did it suddenly is like a character flaw in his personal he's a life. Hoppering philanderer, and <laughs> he drinks too much red wine. <laughs> well, um, any last thoughts? Um, from me, no. I I would say, uh, although people have issues with this guy too, but after I read the Halen book, I reread the Grail Marcus book about Like a Rolling Stone. And, you know, Marcus's opinions about Bob Dylan, especially for a mid to late Bob Dylan podcast, you guys probably don't agree with. Uh, but that book was such a fucking palate cleanser because he can actually write, he's smart and clever, and he gets a little, uh, you know, uh, out of hand sometimes, in some places maybe, but it was an example to me of like, oh, it is possible that you can pay deep, close attention to what Dylan's doing uh, and it can be entertaining. And I think like my big thing with Dylan, especially reading about him, is like Dylan is fun. And like his career's fun. Mm. He's funny. He's an entertaining and I think humorous and kind of sly person. Uh, and I wish that would come across more in reading about him and less this idea that like he's some sort of Loki-ish trickster who's just trying to like fucking pull the wool over everyone's eyes, you know? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's such a Yeah, or some or some kind of uh some kind of like a creep or like mean man i mean we read that awful thing the other uh week where it was just like some guy talking about how dylan is so unfriendly and he he's so stingy it's like yeah he's he's brought nothing but joy to my life I don't bob know dylan about- has spent the last 65 years just like like uh entertaining people day in and day he's given more to more people over the last half century plus than virtually any other person on the planet and he could have quit decades and decades ago and lived happily and comfortably he could have just never done anything else I, I feel the same way even about his lyrics, right? When people are like, oh, it's impenetrable, blah, 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 the emperor's new clothes. It's like, fuck impenetrable. Like, that stuff is so generous because it's open to interpretation, because it can make you feel and think about 100 million different things when you listen to it, because it hits different hearts in different ways. Like, why is that something to be despised, you know? Exactly. And I, and I always think of a line, like, as far as him being entertaining and all this and whether he's disagreeable, uh, the writer Nick Pinkerton, who's a super funny guy, he said this about Morrissey, who's problematic for different reasons. <laughs> Uh, he's like Morrissey's music has given me a lifetime of joy and the internet has given me literally nothing (laughs) and I I think about that a lot when it's like people make these aspersions like oh Bob Dylan's not a nice person it's like first of all why the fuck should he be nice to you yeah exactly what do you suspect that he owes you you know Uh, anyways uh, yeah if Bob hears this I'd love to you know hang tough yeah he he usually listens so (laughs) (laughs) or at least you guys are sort of uh, cryptically communicating with him in a Weberman or Halen-esque way I imagine 
yeah, something like we don't we don't want to uh, reveal too many secrets. Well, thank you for coming on the program, John. This has been a, a delight. Yeah, my pleasure. It's fun. Very much so. Yeah, where uh, where can uh, uh, our listeners uh, keep up with you, follow you, uh, you know, kind of tune in on on what's going on? Uh, I write a bit for the New Republic magazine and the Baffler magazine, and you can follow me on Twitter at John Semley three thousand. Uh, I was often engaging with you guys in different fringes of the uh, Twitter Dylanverse. I got Harry Hugh in my mentions right now. Yeah, <laughs> it's a fun. Uh, it's a fun little world we got over maybe, there. Maybe maybe Harry Hugh will come on sometime. And uh, yeah. you should get Harry on another great Canadian like myself and Will Sloan. Uh, it'll be uh, wow. We're really collecting all of the uh, the Canadian uh, like trophy uh, trophy cards right now. The, the Jokerman International. We've got Canada and um, Australia. Right? And Ireland, don't don't and forget Ireland. The end. And Ireland, no Brits though. Uh, no Brit, no Brits allowed. We're gonna get Clinton Halen on after this. I'm sure Brits he's need not apply. Come. He's gonna um, come on. I think cool. my buddy Josh has his email address. If you need uh, Clinton's email address, nah. or if you if you need Weberman's, uh, I think I have it. Also, Weberman, Rich Thane is a cool guy. That he's cool. <laughs> I, I, I think Weberman has like a Mindspring email address, like that. Right. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, what, what, you've got your tickets already, right, John? For um, for Shadow um, Kingdom. Beep beep baby, I'm chanting beeps 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 beeps. Beeps. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I love signing up for some new live music ticketing service that I've never heard of. Before. Yeah, yeah. That, that will never go anywhere after this one thing. Yeah, just a, that's another thing where I'm gonna get 75 fucking form emails every week. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I did get. I'm so stoked for Shadow Kingdom, whatever the fuck it is. Yes, yeah. Stay tuned, uh, everyone out there. I think we're going to try to figure out something, uh, some sort of you know Jokerman community event based around it. Um, you know, we're 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 still determining what that looks like, but I, th- I think we're all going to have a lot of fun on the computer together that day. I'll be there. Hell yeah. Um, well, three stars to John. Uh, zero stars to Clinton Halen. Eh, one star. One star. He made that book about the recording sessions, which was pretty helpful in the early run of our episodes. Yes. He's also written a Van Morrison biography that I feel like you should read, Evan. Is he revising it to uh, talk about uh, Van Morrison's new work? or Going down. County up. County up. County down. Jokerman.